the Lord be with you. O God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Okay, in your books, those of you that have books, we should be on page 20. Um, And Professor Marquardt, uh, at the end of last week's Bible study, uh, brought up brought up this concept, and it's it's I shouldn't say concept. It's what Jesus call, calls all Christians to do. So in Matthew seven verse fifteen, Jesus says this: "Watch out for false prophets." Okay. So who is to watch out for false prophets? Everyone. Everyone is to watch out for false prophets. So it's the same thing, parents, that you teach your kids about the type of company they keep, right? So uh, the types of, of, of students that they may choose to hang around in school and the types of activities that they're exposed to, uh, Jesus is basically saying the same thing. Watch out for false prophets. Now, how do you know what a false prophet is? How do you know what a false prophet is? You, you test what you see and what you hear over and against the scriptures, okay? So ultimately, the judge is who or what, or who and what. Who is the judge for false teachers, for false doctrine? Specifically, Jesus, right? So Jesus then is the judge. He's the one who has ascended and has been given, put your arm up, all power and authority, He sits at the right hand of God, as we confess in the creeds, and that's a matter of authority. So Jesus, as uh, the second person of the Trinity, has that authority, but Jesus is also the verba, or the logos. He is the word, right? Which is how someone can even come to faith without ever setting foot in a church, okay? Um, or how just sharing and giving reason for the hope that lives within you to someone maybe that you might meet, sharing the gospel of uh, who Jesus is and what he has done, because the Lord works always through his word. Repeat after me, the word, the word, the word. There you go. I stole that from another pastor friend of mine, but it's it's all about the word. So the word always does the work, right? Um, And now you think about that sacramentally, you know, in baptism, there's nothing special about the water, right? We don't believe that the water in and of itself is holy. We don't bless it as pastors to get it ready to be used in the rite of holy baptism. It's just regular plain water, okay? But now, when it's coupled with what? The Word, it becomes, as Luther says, a life-giving water, right? Um, Same thing with uh, simple bread and wine. Anything special about the bread or wine we use? Nope. I'd submit to you, and some some pastors and a few academics would probably crucify me for this, um, you could use any type of bread. Okay? So even like in the the Passover meal, you have to understand the Passover meal as it was celebrated has gone through a lot of different changes over the years depending on the rabbis. So we don't know exactly what type of bread did they use. What type of grain did they use, do you know? 
How, how many agricultural people? We got a few agri-science people here. Do you know what type of, of grain strain that was that they, they would have used? Any idea? You don't. So there's a lot of different types of, of grains, if you will, correct? Is that fair? Agri-science people? So we don't know exactly what they used then. Say, do we specifically even know for a fact that it was unleavened that they used? Does it say that in the Bible? Oh, we don't know that for a fact. We know the Passover meal, the original Passover was required to be unleavened, right? And so, and then down the road, we know that they kept some of that, um, but, you know, we don't have it specifically written down for us. Now, we still use unleavened bread, meaning without yeast, because that's probably the closest we can get to it, but... We don't know if it was white or wheat. <laughs> we don't know how much fat content they might have added to it to act as a binder. We don't know whether it was bitter bread or sweet bread. You know, uh, we don't know. They took bread and they broke it, and it was probably a little bit of a messy meal. So if you're one of those people that has gotten, you know, um, your you know what in a wad because there's a few crumbs around the communion rail, I would tell you this: it's a meal. What does that mean? It's a meal. You're eating and drinking. That's the most important thing, right? Now, if you, if you obviously drop the, the host, uh, you know, pick it up, and I'll give you another one, and then I'll probably eat it discreetly, okay? You know, those of you that have little kids running around, you, that doesn't bother you at all. Uh, those of you whose kids have gotten a little older, you know, you don't do the three-second rule anymore, you know? <laughs> You're probably like, you know, the one-one-thousand-second rule, right? As soon as it touches anything, I'm not eating that. So, uh, okay, enough of that. So, it all comes back to the Word. The Word does the work. So, the Word takes simple water um, and now makes it a life-giving water. The Word takes simple bread and simple wine and makes it also now the body and blood of Jesus. Okay? So, just think along these lines. So, now when we're talking about discerning false teachers or what is true and what is not, we always come back to what Scripture says to discern that. Okay? Um, and so the authority always ultimately is Christ, but he has given you now a user manual, a textbook, a catechism, if you will, uh, which means question and answer, and that's, that's, that's Holy Scripture. Okay, any comments on that before we move on here? So he differentiated between private judgment last week, we ended on this, and private interpretation. He says, if every sheep is entitled to its own opinion, though, will there not be total chaos? And that's a fair question, right? So if it's just a matter, and this is the postmodern conundrum, if everybody's entitled to their own opinion or their own ability to decide what is true and what is not, then what do you end up with? You end up with total chaos, okay? And then societally speaking, uh, do we have any sociologists here? Are there people in sociology? Uh, were you raising your hand or no? You don't want me to pick on you, okay. Uh, so you have to find something else then to unite people and, and you can kind of think through you know, how socialism has worked over the years and the things they've had to do to try and unite people. Uh, anyway, let's, let's, let's move on. I'm going to get off track here. So, so why bother with shepherds if the, sheep's themsel if the sheep themselves decide everything? And this is the problem if a church follows a completely congregational model as well. What do you need shepherds for? Now, we would see this in other churches where they would have pastors, but the pastors really have no um, authority or, you know, it's we're, we're all pastors, right? Everyone is a minister. And we would disagree with that from Scripture, 
right? Everyone is a priest. Scripture talks about that. You and I each are priests. And we now have our vocation. We have what God has called us to do. And Luther does this in the table of duties, simply from Scripture says, you know, are you a mother? (laughs) Are you a father? Uh, Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a son? Are you a daughter? Are you a worker? Do you have a boss? Are you a citizen? You can kind of run through vocationally speaking all of those things and find out then what you're tasked with doing. And in all those positions, there is a delineation of authority. I need that back. (laughs) Where the paragraph before you had. Yeah, no, paragraph before the one you had. We'll just go, you, you, just leave it there. Oh, go back. What did you do? <laughs> uh, you need to go back one, two, three, four paragraphs. I was just reviewing for them before the paragraph you had up there. Dead silence. Okay, just go back to there is no right judgment, the one you had earlier. Okay, here we go. All right. So there is no right of private interpretation, and this is from 2 Peter 1.20. No one has the right to make Scripture mean whatever he wishes, which is why I've shared with you before, you have to be careful about the Joel Olstein and a little bit, uh, Beth Moore does this a little bit, that this kind of what does this mean to me, or what does this Scripture say to me? So you have to, you have to really rewire yourself from that, Okay. Um, And keep in mind with false teachers, there's a lot of things they can say that are true, correct? But at the same time, things that are false. So now what you have to discern is what is true and what is false. And Jesus says, ultimately, if somebody is teaching falsely, what does Jesus say with somebody who's teaching falsely? What's he say? Avoid them, right? Now, we're not talking about simple mistakes that get made. So, um, you know, I've been here, what, three months now, and and I've I've already admitted a couple of times where I either misspoke or I got something wrong. I mean, I'm sinful, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Grady is as well. Right, Pastor Grady? Oh, yeah, a double answer for him. Um, You know, so, you know, mistakes is not the same as false teaching. False teaching is deliberately teaching and preaching something now that is contrary to Scripture. And so when you come across that, and then this becomes a challenge. Some of you might have come from other church bodies or other churches because you had to wrestle with this very decision. And that's it's a tough one. Because on some hands, you know, on one hand, you, you want to you wanna make things right. You want to stay and fight. Um, and I always encourage people to try and do that. But eventually you get to a point where you have to do what? You got to leave. Okay? You have to mark and avoid. That's the language that we use. So mark means identify this person, this organization, this is false teaching, this is not true, and then you have to then avoid, okay? Um, and that's one of the hardest things to do, especially when you've got family involved, okay? Uh, or you've had your whole history and heritage, you know, tied up in, in one way or the other, okay? Uh, but the Lord calls us to do that. And so when I talk with people that are coming, you know, from other bodies, I simply try to discern what they believe, what they confess, and then if they still have you know, questions, and obviously we all have a need to continue to learn, then to try and discern what it is that, that I need to teach them. Um, and then if they get to that point where they share the same confession, then, you know, then so be it. Thanks be to God. And that's why Paul talks about you know, we are one loaf. So when he says one loaf of bread... 
He's not saying that, he's not talking about the church as a whole. He's talking about the loaf in terms of the parish or the congregational, right? So you can have many loaves, just as you have countless grains, okay? So what type of loaf are you part of? Which is why the best place for you to take the Lord's Supper is where? At, from, with, at your church, from your pastor, pastors, and within your church family, right? So it's not a life and death situation if you don't have it when you, you know, go on spring break to Florida or, or back to visit the family farm in Minnesota, you know, I mean, you'll want to, and especially if there's family involved, but sometimes you have to avoid those things because it's not your confession, right? And you don't share that. And that's kind of a hard thing to grasp, uh, but I think all of you are well catechized. Just nod your heads like you know what I'm talking about. Okay. So he, he moves on. So we, you're still on that paragraph. So there is no right of private interpretation. No one has the right to make Scripture mean whatever he wishes. Nor has anyone the right, whether in the name of Pope, clergy, scholars, or majority opinion, to impose upon the church his own private interpretation. That is an understanding of Scripture which cannot be proved from the sacred text itself. So this has become our issue, and not just with the Roman Catholic Church, but with other denominational bodies as well. Okay? Uh, the Mormon Church pulls this card. So they have one head. Do you know what he's called? Huh? Not, not just president. Oh, come on. Come on. You know this, don't you? Oh, you should look it up. Yeah, prophet, apostle. Okay? Um, and so he is, he is the head. And so they have one who now they believe God speaks to, and whatever then he decides is, becomes equal to God's word. Uh, Hinckley, who used to be the head of the Mormon church for a long time, he made some big changes. And that's why you've got the original Book of Mormon, which will talk about uh, uh, people of color being literally of the devil, right? So you have any, any type of uh, pigment in your skin at all, that that was part of the mark pronounced upon Cain, right? Um, now that's changed. And so now you'll see all sorts of Mormon commercials with you know, red and yellow, black and white, okay? But uh, you know, Mormons originally used to be uh, uh, white only, very racist, okay? Um, and uh, so how did it change? There was an apostle, apostle, a prophet, a spokesman for God who said, now this is the interpretation God has given. There's new revelation, right? Um, so the Roman Catholic Church does this. The Pope uh, will speak ex uh, cathedra, which means from his seat. So from his papal seat, from his office, what he speaks when he speaks in that manner is equal to what? The Word of God, okay? And that's why you'll see different changes throughout the Roman Catholic Church as well. So pay attention to that, okay? For us, everything always comes back to the Word of God, which, by the way, doesn't change. Which should make you naturally question. And, and, and this, this was really difficult for me. I mean, I was raised, as many of you, as a baby Missouri Synod Lutheran. And there were certain things, you know, we always did. But then as I, as I grew up and I started studying and learning, I learned there were some things that I hadn't been taught at all, or that had completely fallen out of disuse, okay? I learned that in the catechism there is something called individual confession and absolution. <gasps> but I looked around through the church, where is that little confessional booth, right? I mean, that sounds kind of cool, sit in a darkened space and, you know, talk to somebody who you know, but you're not supposed to know. I mean, I don't know how that works. Uh, 
Um, you know, and, 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 and in some respects, I mean, it's, it's a great practice, but then again, it was mandated by the Pope. And so, you know, Lutherans, well, we don't want to make any, you know, or encourage anybody even to go see their pastor. That's either too Catholic or just too awkward. Um, I mean, you have all these other things that in the history of the church that I kind of found over the years, why did the church either stop doing that or why did they remove that? Um, you know, and then, you know, after I graduated high school and then, you know, I started going to other Lutheran churches that weren't using a hymnal and liturgy and they had, you know, a, you know, band and they had this really good looking lady singing at the microphone and she was really cute and no, I'm joking. But I mean, you have all these, uh, why, why, why all the changes? So why, why has the church changed and what is okay to change and what is not? And that's kind of what set me on my path down the road of trying to discern all those things, right? And so maybe you've been there in some regards as well, but what Marquardt is teaching us here is that it, it all comes back to, to, to Scripture. Now it goes on to the next paragraph. Private judgment is something completely def- different. So private interpretation, you don't get to decide what Scripture says. Matter of fact, if you're playing that card in your Bible study and you're saying, huh, you know, um, let me interpret this for you, okay? Be very careful, okay? Judgment is different. Private judgment, he says, is a must. Christians have the right and duty to make sure and be convinced in their own conscience that what they're being taught is really God's word. So he goes on. These two sound alike contrast like night and day. Private interpretation means personal subjective whim. Private judgment is bound strictly to the clear, sufficient, and objective norm of Holy Scripture. Quote, they receive the message with great eagerness and examine the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's from Acts 17, verse 11. That's the Berean church. So in Paul's missionary journeys, what he's doing is he's traveling around and he's doing what? What's he doing? Preaching, teaching. He's also identifying sin and issues and errors as he sees them, sometimes in a very winsome way, right? Uh, so he goes to, you know, one of the temples there, and he sees they've got all these different gods with names on them, and he sees one, you know, that that's, uh, says, to an unknown god. And what does Paul do? Let me tell you about the unknown god. And then he goes on to talk about how there's only one True God. I'm sure there were many people who were offended by what Paul had to say. Right? I mean, Paul, after all, was put to death, wasn't he? By the Romans? Why? Why were most of the apostles martyred? Because they claimed there is only one God. And that Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth was his son, the Savior. So it was contradictory to not only um, the, the Jewish religion of the time in that area, but especially, uh, you know, for Rome, uh, who was the one true God for a Roman? Caesar. Absolutely. So that was the whole worship of the Caesars, okay? Which ultimately, if you study history, led to the downfall of the Roman civilization, okay? That wasn't always the case that Caesar was worshipped in such a way, but... We'll save history lessons for another day, okay? Any comments on that? Because I'm sure we've got some history buffs out in the audience too. You're good? Okay, let's move on. 
It is fitting to conclude this section with an admonition based on St. Matthew 24, attributed to that great preacher of ancient Antioch and then Constantinople, St. John Chrysostom, uh, who was called uh, Golden Mouth, okay? Uh, or you might have heard somebody, boy, he's got a silver tongue. What does that mean? It means he can sell ice to an Eskimo, right? Or she. So, you know, some people say, oh, you know, you're such a good salesman. You'll make a good preacher. <laughs> yeah, I, I was told that once. So, you know, looking back on it, I don't think that was a compliment. Here we go. When you shall see the wicked heresy, which is the army of Antichrist, standing in the holy places of the church, then let those who are in Judea head for the mountains. That is, those who are Christians should head for the scriptures. For the true Judea is Christendom, and the mountains are the scriptures of the prophets and apostles, as it is written, her foundations are in the holy mountains. Now, how can scripture be a mountain? Or the mountain? What? It's a rock. How is it a rock? Yes, thank you. So there's the connection again with Christ. Christ is the cornerstone, right? The rock. So you have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is all about the presence of God. How do you know where the presence of God is? Has Jesus promised to be there? Question mark. That's how you answer it, okay? Is the Lord with us or not, okay? If he's promised to be there, where two or three are gathered in my name, where he promises to be, okay? Not only in remembering your baptism and keep this in mind whenever you're scared and afraid and maybe alone like Jacob, okay? Light service people, just wait for it, okay? Um, the Lord is with you. How do I know he's with me? It's a great little thing to teach children. We've used it for our kids, you know, for years. Didn't always, um, until after reading scripture and other pastors, um, you know, when kids have night terrors. Why do kids have night terrors? Bad food? <laughs> Italian sausage tends to do it for me. That normally gets my, my gut working and my dreams are a little crazy. Bad TV? Nobody wants to tackle that one? Dr. John Kleinig, a pastor and professor in Australia, has done a lot in terms of spirituality. And, and someday, maybe when he's back uh, here in the States, we might bring him here. You'd, you'd, you'd just fall in love with him. The, the guy is just amazing. I went to a seminar once that he did uh, that talked about uh, the fact that we live in a very spiritual world. And we do. So there are angels all around us. There are also... Demons, evil, fallen angels, okay? And the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion. And he made some connections I had never thought of, okay? When Jesus talks about, uh, you know, nighttime being the hour of the power of darkness, he's not just talking about what is happening at that time and place, because Scripture goes on to talk about the deeds that are done at night, not in the day. So nighttime is not only an easy time to certainly cover up sin, but from Scripture, it's also a time, Scripture says, where the devil and the evil spirits are actually more heartily at work. Say, oh my. Why do you think we say prayers before we go to bed? Now I lay me down to sleep. 
I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my... And this I ask in Jesus' sake. And you might have some other prayers that you say as well. Okay? Um, and so, um, you know, at, at night, and, and children, for whatever reason, are uh, more susceptible... And, and, and there's an interesting study, and I don't want to go too much further because you're going to be like, whoa, where's, where do you have the proof for that? Um, but the, the spiritual side of things is very interesting. So for little children, we know from Scripture that, that the Lord sends guardian angels especially to watch over them. Why especially them? Why are they singled out above adults? It's a fair question, I think. Okay, I would say that, that you know, they're more susceptible um, you know, uh, can see, can experience things in various ways. Um, and so, so, so long story short, we arm ourselves with God's word even before we go to bed. And when kids, you know, wake up having seen something, um, I, I've never really questioned our kids what they've seen or what they've experienced. I've just accepted it. And then I've applied God's word to it. Okay? Um, and so one of the ways to apply God's word is we say God's name. And I remind them that what? They're a baptized child of God. What does that mean? It means, devil, you leave me alone. Because if you mess with me, you get the big guy. You see that? And so our strength, you know, is always found in Christ, not in ourselves. So, I'm his, and he is mine, right? Um, and so, you know, we say those prayers out loud. We speak the name of God aloud because it's that word, right, which is both the person of Jesus and Holy Scripture that does the work, right? So it's not your faith that does the work. Don't misunderstand those. It's always about Jesus and the word, which bestows and gives what you need. Questions or comments on that? Did I lose you already? You look like you've been looking at an iPad for 15 minutes straight. Oh, wait, you do that all the time. Okay. Uh, so, the Lord, therefore, knowing that there would be such a great confusion, this is the middle of the quote, of things in the last days, commands that Christians who want to gain steadfastness in the true faith should take refuge in nothing else but the Scriptures. Otherwise, if they look to other things, they will be offended and will perish, because they will not know which is the true church, and as a result, they will fall into the abomination of desolation, which stands in the holy places of the church. So where do you turn? Where do you flee? For early service people, what do you remember? And how do you frame things you remember? Late service people, just wait for it. Next section. Scripture, reason, and experience. Any questions before I move on? And oh, a shout out to, uh, we've had a lot of people that have been listening online to our Bible studies and they asked if I would make sure to repeat your questions because we don't have a handheld mic that goes around. So help me remember to do that. And just a real quick uh, shout out to a uh, elderly couple, Bill and Sue Fintel, uh, in Hastings, Nebraska. Um, I could tell you lots of stuff about this, uh, this wonderful older couple, a great service to the church, an orphan grain train, and there's a lot of flooding going on in Nebraska right now, if you haven't heard, and other stuff like that. So Bill and Sue, we love you, and we're praying for you. All right. Say hi. Hi. All right, let's move on. In Reformation times, the term Scripture alone asserted the sole sway of divine authority in the church against human pretensions in the name of tradition. 
Two centuries later, the main rival to Scripture was not tradition, but reason, followed soon by experience. Scripture alone had now to be maintained along this new front. As in the case of tradition, which had to be rejected, uh, as in the case of tradition, what had to be rejected was not reason itself or religion experience, or religious experience, but a wrong understanding and use of them. So today, when we take the tricks of technology for granted, it is hard to imagine the sense of wonder and exhilaration which attended the rise of modern science. Sir Isaac Newton, what, 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 what supposedly did he drop? An apple, yeah. And what happened with the apple? Where did it go? That would've been really funny if it like floated up or something. <laughs> Totally changed, well, no, it, it, it fell, okay? So, so gravity and, all right. Any scientists here wanna tell us anything about Newton we may not know? You're good, okay. Uh, so Sir Isaac Newton, 1642 to 1727, came to be held in awe as the very embodiment of scientific genius. Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be and all was light. So Alexander Pope's famous lines uh, from that poem celebrate the cult of reason of scientific rationality. So the 18th century saw itself as the age of enlightenment. The search of scientific mathematical reasoning was wresting from nature one after another of her secrets. Could not this light be turned with equal profit on the age-old question of philosophy and religion? Mankind, it was thought, had come of age and needed a form of religion more in keeping with the dignity of these new riches of the mind. The past had been filled with superstition and mystery of bowing and scraping before a celestial autocrat. Okay? Uh, Every time I... (laughs) Sorry, I was going to make a Transformers uh, quip there, but I won't. (laughs) It was time now for a religion in the spirit of science and common sense. So what came of this was deism and moralism. There is a God, the soul is immortal, and a happy hereafter comes by way of a decent and respectable life here and now. What do you think? Do we still have a little bit of deism and moralism going on? Yeah, right? So I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Oh, I've been, I've been a pretty good person, you know. Haven't murdered anybody, haven't raped anybody, you know. I pay my taxes, help my neighbor... Is that a fair assessment of what most people still think today? Maybe more than ever. Is that fair? Okay. Um, that it's just all about, you know, your goodness and being a, being a good moral person. Okay. Which, which is funny because now what defines morality has also really changed, especially in regards to sexuality. Correct? Okay. So the emptiness of this reasonable religion was only poorly disguised with the bogus mysteries and ritual of Freemasonry, which arose at that time and gained immense popularity. As this reasonable religiosity trickled down from the universities, where the clergy were trained, to the parishes, the result for church life was progressive collapse. And look at that next quote I have there for you. Mystery, sacrament, and liturgy all had to yield to common sense. And churches became lecture halls featuring practical talks. You know, I go online and listen to some sermons, and I'm not saying that, that all of my sermons are, are, are good or the best, um, but 
you know, I listen to other sermons, whether it's from other Missouri Synod preachers or even just other denominations, and there's so little Jesus. <laughs> there's just so little Jesus. It's all about how I can be a better person. Um, and to be fair, a lot of it is, is kind of good, helpful stuff, right? I mean, if I'm looking to, you know, overcome, I'm battling, you know, some sort of an addiction, you know, if I've been really selfish, if, you know, um, you know I need a little pick-me-up, th those are all fine things. And, and I would say to you, there's a place for that. But is that the purpose of what church is for? See the difference? And, 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 and if Scripture is all about Jesus, as he says, but yet what I hear and what I sing is so little about Jesus is, you know, maybe we've really lost what religion is. And then even just, just the mystery, and keep in mind the word sacrament is, is actually the, 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 the mysterion, right? That's the word. So the word sacrament occurs in Scripture in the Latin, okay, not in the, the, the Greek per se, so it gets translated that way. So when Paul says men ought to consider us as pastors, as stewards of the mysteries of Christ, who are the ones that are supposed to oversee and stewards, who are supposed to be the FedEx and UPS delivery men of these things? The pastors, right? Ordinarily, okay? Um, but keep in mind, like we talked about, an emergency because the power is in the Word of God. Can any of you baptize? Sure, Okay. And I'd get strung up for this one, but could you consecrate the Lord's Supper? <laughs> I would say you could, but should you? Right. And that gets back to the whole thing with the Lord's Supper of whether it's, you know, you don't really have emergency Lord's Suppers. Okay. Oh boy. Now it's getting interesting. <laughs> um, but keep in mind when you forgive one another, so you forgive, um, oh, you've been a really bad boy. And you apologize to your wife, and you say, you know, I've been a real you-know-what here the past few days, and I did this, and I did that, and, and you just lay it all out, and then she says to you, what did she say? You're sleeping on the couch for the next night. <laughs> Hopefully, she says, I forgive you, right? I forgive you. Now, are there different types of forgiveness? How are we able to forgive? What's the song we sing with preschoolers? We love because he first loved us, right? Um, and so we forgive because he forgave us, right? So it all starts with him and his work, which flows through the life of a Christian, which flows through us now literally being, you know, priests. And these are the, the, the good works. They don't earn forgiveness or salvation because that's freely bestowed but the Lord has given us work to do and so that's why you know forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our well Jesus should have rewrote that he should have said forgive us our trespasses as only our pastors bestow the forgiveness of Christ upon other people are you picking up what I'm laying down because we've got a contingent of that going on even in the Missouri Synod okay um, and a little bit of that sacerdotalism, which would also factor into the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, um, So the power is always in the Word of God. And we hold that intention. It's a little bit of a paradox. Okay, um, And so publicly, 
You know, we have pastors, and that's why, you know, Augustana uh, 4 and 14, um, or 5 and 14, so pastors are called to publicly preach and teach and do that, right? So do that in the stead of Christ, okay? Um, and then you have in the home, mom and dad. Can mom and dad teach and preach to their kids? I hope they are. Absolutely, right? Um, okay, any, any comments here? I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little whoopy-doopy. Okay, where am I at? So, so that's the problem with just kind of practical talk. So we always got to come back to the authority of the word. Two examples from that time will illustrate the spirit of the thing. One is a Christmas sermon based on the traditional gospel about the Christ child in the manger. Now, the preacher sang the praises of stall feeding in the interests of scientific daring. <laughs> Another sermon on Good Friday expounded the desirability of making one's last will and testament in writing and this on the basis of Pontius Pilate's words, what I have written, I have written. So what he's saying is what? Here he's heard two sermons, nothing about Jesus, nothing about sin, nothing about forgiveness of sins. Um, so the first one is simply about, uh, you know, the animals in the manger stall and, you know, and how stall feeding was a good thing. And, you know, I, I don't know, any, any farmers want to help us out with that? putting the food down low instead of up high, I don't know. Um, or last will and testament, you know, we, we've got, we've got a, you know, some people with legal backgrounds in here. And, and that's, all, that's all interesting stuff. That's all good stuff. But what does it have to do with, with faith, with grace, with mercy, with, with Holy Scripture? Or what even is the purpose of Scripture then? So the purpose of Scripture is to help understand animal husbandry and how you should feed your animals on your hobby farm or your real farm, then I think you're missing the point. Or if the purpose of Pontius Pilate standing before Jesus is to make sure that you have, you know, some sort of an estate plan or a trust established so your kids don't inherit, you know, however much money you have in insurance when they turn 18. I know I don't trust my kids with that. We're not going to talk about what they would probably go by. <laughs> so, um, so offered stones for bread, the people left the European, largely Lutheran state churches by the millions. And they really have not returned to this day as tourists easily discover. Somebody was talking to me about, was it the, the heritage tour trip here this last year where you went? Uh, and you were, I think you were in Wittenberg. And you went to a church and the majority of people there were actually not... German or European. They were Christians from where? Help me out, I wasn't there. Other countries, right? The majority of them were from other, were from not, well, no, maybe they were German now. I mean, I don't know about their immigration status, but, but they were not, you know, your, your, your typical Europeans. Um, and so, you know, we are following in the same footsteps as Europe here in the United States as well. Okay. Any comments on that? You guys are just kind of soaking this up. Okay. Um, in the course of time, a reaction set into the excesses of rationalism uh, or the worship of reason. However, fashionable theology had by then developed a strong distaste for the authority of divine revelation and tried to solve its problems with human ingenuity. The enormous influence of Frederick Schleiermacher, 1768 to 1834, brought about a massive shift from reason to emotion. Schleiermacher defined religion as an absolute feeling, feelings, nothing more than, you know that one? 
uh, you know, feeling of dependence. And so in this way, he thought he could set theology and the church free from the tyranny of rigid reason. Not surprisingly, however, the imagined liberation from the frying pan of rationalism put theology into the fire of emotionalism. Oh, I just didn't feel church today. The preacher didn't really move me. The hymns were all boring. You know, normally, you know, Mr. Layman, he really gets going on the organ, but today it's like everyone was a funeral hymn. Is he here? <laughs> well, no, I mean, that, see, we, we fall into that trap sometimes too. I just didn't, didn't feel anything. So we got to be careful with that. Okay, we are emotional people. I mean, you know, shortest sentence in the Bible, Jesus wept, okay? Um, so, I mean, we, we are emotional people, but that's also not the goal or the intent, right? So, I mean, if you want me to make you laugh and make you cry, I promise you I could do that every Sunday in the sermon. And I used to, when I was a younger preacher, would try and play more with emotions, okay? Now I don't, I don't do it quite as often unless, you know, the text does it, okay? I mean, I could get up there and tell you all sorts of tearjerker stories, Early service people, you heard a little bit of one this morning, okay? Uh, I don't do that that often. You have to be very careful with that because when you play on emotions, you can really lose sight of what's important with it, right? Or I have a good friend of mine, you know, now retired. Every time he would preach, we called his sermons skyscraper sermons because he would literally just tell one story and then there'd be another story that would build on top of that and another story on top of that. There'd be like 10 to 15 stories in a 15 to 20 minute sermon. There'd be more stories than there really was, you know, scripture. And he would still get law and gospel in there. I don't know how he did it. Um, and I mean, you know, uh, I mean, and the, you know, so <laughs> you got to be careful with that. All right, let's move on before I get myself in trouble with somebody listening on the internet. <laughs> so, um, not surprisingly, however, the imagined liberation from the frying pan of rationalism put theology into the fire of emotionalism. So modern fever swamps. That's a great phrase of shapeless religiosity and occultism suggests that the cure turned out to be worse than the disease, the last state worse than the first. So what Marquardt is teaching us here is they went from the rationalism where everything is either, you know, A or B or one plus one equals two. So everything's a matter of reason and common sense to the other side of it of, you know, why? You know, I mean, this, this whole emotionally driven, you know, um, you know a, a pastor and a rabbi walked into a bar. <laughs> you know, I mean, so you get this whole kind of play on emotion apart from that. And he said it ended up worse than where it was. Okay. And I think he's spot on on that. I think he's correct. So a major part of the Enlightenment's sea change in culture and religion was a radically new approach to the Bible. No longer did theologians assume scripture to be true in every particular, and on those terms, no longer could it be the supreme authority. We've gone through this in the Missouri Synod, still have it, okay? You'll hear somebody say, it doesn't really matter if, you know, Jonah was a real person, or if he was really swallowed by a great big fish, or whether Adam and Eve were, were the actual first two people, or whether they were just two people that God plucked out of the ones that were already there that had crawled out of the muck and mud from evolution. I know Missouri Saint Lutherans who believe those things I just said. Okay? And we read something just a, a few weeks ago, didn't we? A month ago from a professor. 
Concordia Portland, talking about life. I mean, so that's out there. All right, so just be aware of that. Mark and avoid, you know, recognize uh, false prophets. But, but, you know, that whole battle for the Bible that we had back in the 60s, there's a part of that that's still there. And always, let me say it this way, always will be there because we're sinners and no church is, is perfect either, right? Visible church consists of, consists of believers and hypocrites, right? And it would, it would make the job of the pastors, elders really easy if we could look out and see who is just saying they believe and really doesn't, then we'd know where to spend our time and energy, okay? I wish I, I, wish I had those x-ray glasses, okay? Well, we don't know that, so we, 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 you know, we uh, look at works and that sort of thing, but, but uh, we stick with God's word because that does the work. Okay, comments on that before we move on? She's going to dive into one thing real quick, and then we're going to be done for today. Um, so no longer do theologians assume Scripture to be true in every particular and on those terms, no longer could it be the supreme authority. So they went from the reason of, how is that even possible? How can, how can body and blood of Jesus occupy the same space uh, as bread and wine? They went from that to, what would be the emotional response? Don't take the Lord's Supper if you're not feeling good about yourself. Right? Okay. Um, or, all right, that's enough. I think you get it. So now it was considered subject to the same critical investigations as other literature. Like other historical documents, it had henceforth, it had henceforth to be carefully tested for bias, error, and outright fabrication. And the instrument with which all this was to be done has become known as, read it with me, the historical critical method. As this intricate subject cannot be pursued here at length, and we're not going to do it in Bible class either, interested readers are referred to other sources for more detailed discussions, and you can see the footnote for that. But it'll be enough for the purposes of this chapter in this Bible class to note two major features of historical criticism as applied to Scripture. Okay? So historical criticism in a nutshell, let me give you a simple definition, is using history to critique or decide what parts of Scripture are true and accurate and trustworthy. Got it? So the litmus test then for whether this part of Scripture is true or accurate is, did it happen in history? Could it have happened in history? That's probably the simplest way I can explain it to you. As opposed to a believer who simply says, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? So we are considered archaic, <laughs> Ancient <laughs> idiots for simply believing the Bible is what? The Word of God in its entirety. Okay? All right. Raise your hand in the air. Idiots unite. <laughs> no, I mean, so, so simple faith. Okay? Um, and the world says that's ridiculous. The world says that's ridiculous. So the first, he says, let me finish with this, then we'll be done. The first has to do with the very nature of this criticism and the second with its consequences. It is true that historical criticism is often combined with an anti-supernatural bias which rules out all miracles in advance. Uh, Mr. Chuck Long, can miracles still happen? Okay, read about a couple of miracles in his newsletter article, okay? Now that doesn't prove the Bible is true, but God still works in many and various ways. And we simply, when it happens, say, thanks be to God right? Chuck's not going to go out and write his own Bible and put that equal to God's word and say, here's my, you know, book of miracles to prove that God is real. 
okay? Nor any of you hopefully going to write a book saying that heaven is real because you saw it or your kids saw it. You're going to believe heaven is real because why? Because God's Word says it's real. See the difference? Okay. Uh, so this is the heirloom of an old-fashioned scientism. Yet the real point of the historical critical principle is something else. It is often claimed the historical criticism is simply a neutral set of scholarly tools or procedures allegedly necessary for the understanding and interpretation of any text. Actually, it is just this neutrality which is the problem when Holy Scripture is in view. And in the case of other documents, it is, of course, perfectly in order, indeed necessary, to approach them with a critical frame of mind. This involves not prejudging questions of fact until all the relevant evidence has been properly sorted out. For judges, impartiality clearly stands out as the highest virtue. In the context of judging historical documents, this would mean that no one source or witness may be given preferential treatment or be allowed any privileged standing. Any version of an event may be called into question on the basis of a different account and another plausible source. Yet this is precisely what Christian theology cannot grant when it comes to the Bible, which faith recognizes as the very word of God. Repeat the next sentence with me. When Scripture speaks, God speaks, and the matter is settled. Got it? So no human authority is or can be on a par with the divine standing of Holy Scripture. And let's read Romans 3, 4 together. Let God be true and every human being a liar. So who's the judge? Who interprets what he has to say? God does. Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay? And so now we stand everything else up against what God has said. Okay? All right. That's enough for now because if I go, we're going to be here another 10 minutes and we don't have time for that. Any comments or questions on what Professor Marquardt has been teaching us so far? Okay, you're still awake, going through, taking this a little more slowly like this? You're good? Okay. Nobody's throwing anything at me? Okay. Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Before I pray, is, is Mr. Charles Crane here with us this morning? Oh, I was going to give him a thank you. Late service people, you'll find out about it. We have an addition... Uh, in our sanctuary, uh, Mr. Crane took an old altar cross that had been back in our bell tower, uh, painted it black, affixed the dark cherry wood from our sanctuary on it, and then with a, uh, a corpus of Jesus that I gave him, attached that to the wood. So we actually have an altar cross now that we can move around. Okay, so take a look at it, see what you think about it, uh, and, uh, and, and let us know. But uh, we thank him for his time and his uh, labor, and always good to remember what our Lord has done for us. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.